Welcome to the first ever episode of Fascinate Pod. What an exciting day. I'm looking forward to learning a lot and hopefully you are too. Over the next few weeks I'm going to be speaking to some really fascinating people. But first up today, Dr. Kate Thatcher. Kate is an archaeologist from Canada. She has lived in America and for the last few years she's been living in London. We talk about human evolution, some of the sites she's worked on. She's got some great stories. I hope you enjoy. so much for coming on. Just before we started recording, we were talking about some of the digs that Kate's been on, some of the trenches where she's found some interesting artefacts. Now, what interests me is about burials. So when you find some of these items, what can you infer about someone's status in society, depending on what they've been buried with? There's there's a lot of kind of theory around that. And um so there are two types of status, really, general types. There's um, horizontal and vertical. The idea is some status sometimes is earned over a lifetime, and sometimes status is given. So when you look, when you look at an individual, you might be able to say that they have nothing at all or that they have hundreds of objects or things that look really expensive, but... In order to really interpret it, you need to look at the patterns. So you'd want to look at what other people in the cemetery might be better. Uh, sorry, what other people in the cemetery might be buried with, to try and see, you know, are females all buried with a particular toolkit? Oh. Are males all buried with a particular toolkit? That would mean that, at least from the burial perspective, it's kind of more horizontally stratified so people there's not this status like um like we think about with a lower to higher socioeconomic class or Mm. you know less powerful to more powerful it's just that people have different kind of roles and they're all kind of just as important but you can also get cemeteries where you have somebody buried with nothing and somebody else buried with hundreds of objects and that's more probably of an ascribed status. So people earn that status over time. And that's reflected in the burials. But Are the objects that they're buried with, are they often to do with their work, like their occupation? Or are they to do with money? Or is I'm, it depending on cultures? It, yeah, it just depends on the culture, um, really. So sometimes, sometimes the objects are things they used in life, maybe that were important to them. Sometimes... They're more ritualistic objects. They might have been made but not used. Um, sometimes people are buried with nothing at all. Um, and sometimes it's just culturally dictated. So it really it, it depends on the culture. It varies by time and all around the world. Where's your favorite place that you've been on one of these digs? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know if I can... Um, I guess I kind of have two favorite places <laughs> and Go they're just it. very different. They're just very different. So, um, I, when I did my PhD, I excavated in Russia, in Siberia, near the coast of Lake Baikal, um, the Southern coast. And there they had hunter gatherers and it's very rare to find hunter. So I did, um, burials. I did, uh, human skeletons. That was my specialty. And you don't often find large cemeteries for hunter gatherers. But there you have a, a large lake resource. 
Okay. And lots of fish. And when you have lots of fish, it's a resource that you can gather quite easily and quickly and kind of in bulk. And so you can support larger populations and they can kind of stick around the area a little more rather than having to move with herds, Yeah. So for example. What, what sort of um, time period are we talking so about? So this is um, somewhere in the ballpark of about 3 to 11, 10, 11,000 years ago, I believe. 3,000 to 11,000. Oh, yeah. If memory serves me right, it's been a while. <laughs> but, uh, it's these, quite a large yeah, of people were there for a long time. They were there for a long time. There's a little hiatus when people weren't being buried very much and actually what you see are these two different kind of burial traditions one which is earlier and these are they're hunter gatherers with pottery and in northern groups they call this forest neolithic um neolithic usually means that you have agriculture but when you're talking about northern climates so for example in the baltics in russia they use the term neolithic forest neolithic it doesn't mean agriculture, it just means pottery. So this is forest Neolithic. They have pottery, um, but in their burial tradition, um, some people are buried with nothing, and some people are buried with hundreds of objects. So you see there's a real social stratification, a real difference kind of in status between members of, of the group, right. at least as is represented in the burial record, right, in, in the burials themselves. Mm. So does that signify that someone is a leader? Yeah, yeah. People probably have different roles within the group, and some people are probably going to be more powerful or have more status or more access than other people. You still have people who are buried with nothing, so I guess that says something that everybody kind of matters in Mm. a way. Um, And then there's a, a bit of a hiatus in the burial record, so you get this period when... It doesn't seem like people are really being buried, at least not in these big cemeteries as much. So what do you infer from that? Is it that people just aren't being buried? It's just part, not part of the tradition that they have? Or have people decided to go to somewhere else and then they've come back to this rich fishing area a little later on? Yeah. The idea is um, people were probably still in the area, but maybe not in the same size groups. And the idea is... Um, a while ago that there was probably an environmental shift. Um, so people kind of moved out of the area or the populations weren't quite as large, I guess. But then you have this new burial tradition come in. You can look at the DNA and they don't look like they're associated groups okay. associated with the people before. Then you have this other group come in. Um, they start. You start seeing some metal. Um, so oh. we're just talking early Bronze Age. Um, but they're still hunter-gatherers. They're still moving around the landscape. And they tend to have kind of standardized burial toolkits that go with males and that go with females. So you see more of that, in a way, horizontal stratification. So men and women are treated slightly differently within the burial record, just in what they're buried with. But you don't see that that stratification where you or that differentiation where you have maybe people who are buried with nothing and other people who are buried with hundreds of objects. What might a man or a woman be buried with in one of those burial sites? Um, it's, been, it's, been a, it's been a long time. <laughs> uh, but I remember we were finding um, a lots of fish hooks and things associated with um, basically fishing and hunting 
we did find one individual with a, a huge bronze pendant, which was quite rare, and that must have been probably an important person within that group. Like a medal type thing. Yeah, almost like a like a medallion kind of on the chest. Um, mm. That was quite unexpected um, because people are usually buried with a lot of the same stuff. So this person stood out yeah. in some way for whatever reason. Do you get a lot of bronze around there? In the time period we're talking about and in the cemeteries that we excavated, there wasn't much bronze coming out. Not that I... Not that I'm aware of, but I also didn't... I, I primarily excavated some of the older cemeteries from the groups before. Okay. Yeah. What yeah. sort of things can you find out then when you when you dig somebody up? Um, there's a lot you can tell from the skeleton. So people tend to think of bones as relatively static. Like right. once they're you're a grown person, they don't change. And they really do um, over time. So... You can tell a lot of things. Um, you can you can look at things like, um, for example, uh, there's something called stable isotope analysis, and that's where you take uh, yeah, <laughs> that's where you take a, a little bit of bone, and you can analyze it for its chemical composition, and that can tell you a bit about some of the foods people ate. Um, so you can look at what type of, generally speaking, I mean, you can't narrow it down to one specific thing, but you can tell, you know, maybe they're eating more land mammals, for example, that feed on, graze on certain grasses, wow. or that they're eating fish um, found in certain parts of a, a lake or the ocean, depending. Um, you can also tell where on the food chain something comes um, and actually, one of the interesting things is um, if you look at the stable isotope values for children who are still breastfeeding, they come up as um, almost cannibalistic in a sense. Right. Yeah, their um, their uh, chemical kind of their chemical signatures. Yeah, show them feeding on humans, which are usually kind of towards the top of the food chain, eating everything else. Right. So that's not always been the case, though, has it? Like humans being the top of the food chain. No. We didn't used to be. <laughs> such, no, you know, such top a... predators. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, for a long time, I mean, a lot of our time as, as humans and, and the ancestors of humans, we were kind of just, I mean, we preyed on other animals, but we were also preyed upon. So mm. we were also um, a food for other creatures as well. Yeah. I I don't know if you've read the book Sapiens. I'm starting to listen to it. Okay, so at the I think somewhere near the start of that, it talks about humans coming in after a lion's made a kill. So mm-hmm. we we would let the lions have their share first, and then we wouldn't go in to scavenge after after that because there'd be hyenas and jackals that are coming after mm-hmm. that. So we would come in once the hyenas have picked the bones dry, and then one of the first uses of tools was to smash open. Uh, bones to mm-hmm. get to the marrow that was inside them because that's very nutrient dense. Mm-hmm. So it's something that I've never really thought about, like humans not being the apex predator. But I suppose before we had tools, before we had house, you know, solid walls that we could protect ourselves from the wild animals, we couldn't really protect ourselves. We had no chance <laughs> yeah. against the lion, did we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess um, part of being human and what helped make us human is our 
our sociality, um, it's our, it's existing and, and working well in social groups. I guess protection in a way came from safety in numbers to a certain extent. Yeah. And we're also, we are quite clever and can, um, move into different environments and we can modify and make tools to protect ourselves. You know, there's the use of fire to help keep animals at bay. So now we build homes and, and, you know, sometimes lock ourselves inside them. So we have ways of protecting ourselves definitely, but, um, because of our brains. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of it's, um, our ability to think and create and, um, that's really been uh, one of our greatest assets, I suppose. It's it's really helped us kind of. We're basically almost everywhere <laughs> now. Yeah. Um, so we're quite a successful species. Quite a virus that, on the planet. Yeah, I know exactly. We're a really successful species, and and people talk about us now entering the Anthropocene, which is basically the age of humans. How we're affecting the Earth, the environment. Um, we are we do modify our environments and other animals adapt to those so one of the classic examples i think is the moth during the industrial revolution here in england and so the moths for example were if if i remember this correctly they were white and then of course you had these factories right emitting all this pollution and things kind of turned gray and so all the white moths started getting picked off while the ones that were slightly darker in color and could blend into the background. Well, on the side of buildings. Yeah, for example, kind of were a darker color. Um, so we're, we're constantly modifying our environment and things around us are adapting to it. Now you hear about organisms in the ocean that are eating plastic, you know, that are digesting and, and using plastics. So we... we I haven't heard about those. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know that much to talk about it, but I think they are finding organisms that can digest plastic now. That'd yeah. be great to harness, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because just put a few, <laughs> let a few loose in the landfill. Sites <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's everywhere, and you know, in archaeology, <laughs> you don't. You, when you're digging, especially in cities, you go through a lot of modern stuff, and you do find. I I dug at a site in Camden here in London. And we found tinsel. I don't know if that's what you call it here, but tinsel from parties in the 80s. Yeah. And, you know, we were finding all these um, things associated with a Christmas party that had just kind of somebody had thrown out in the back and it eventually got covered up. And, I mean, it's here, what, 20, 30, 40 years later. Mm. Um, so those things don't – there are a lot of things that don't break down. It's just, I think um, – does that get in the way quite a lot when you're when you're on a dig? Well, archaeology is kind of about finding rubbish, <laughs> really, in a way. Um, so the more modern stuff, we don't necessarily pay as much attention to. We have a good record of the 1980s, so yeah. we don't really need to to document it that much. Um, so that kind of stuff's taken away quite quickly. But how we find out about people, it's what they used and what they built in the past. And for example, here in London, when you're walking down a modern road, you're probably meters above street level, say, you know, three, 400 years ago. And what people were doing, what they do is they'd kind of build, say the foundation of something, maybe a a house, it would be used. It would be 
decommissioned possibly or, or reconstructed. And what they do is they use those original foundations and they'd fill in the ground around it with basically dumps, you know, broken pottery, animal bone, kind of like, it's kind of like waste that they use to build up the ground to build up the, yeah. So to build up the foundation. So we, (laughs) we use people's garbage a lot in order to understand what people were producing, what they were eating, the styles of, of things they might be wearing, say buttons or pins. Um, so a lot of it's about garbage really (laughs) about things that are thrown away or or decommissioned or, um, somehow end up buried really. Yeah. Yeah. Has most of your work revolved around what humans are doing then like the waste from Mm. humans. I mean, I I think somebody I know did find a dinosaur, but it was only because it was, uh, from a museum site or something like that. So it wasn't really in situ. Um, so you don't deal with fossils at all? I don't, no. But there are, are paleoanthropologists. That are crossover. Yeah. And they tend to deal with human ancestors. So they'll tend to deal with this fossil species that predated modern humans. They look, you know, they travel to different places looking for um, the remains of human ancestors. And those will be fossils. But it takes time for something to become fossilized. How long would it so, take? Or how long could it take under um, good conditions? I don't, <laughs> I don't know under ideal conditions necessarily, but it takes a while because um, there's a chemical replacement that happens in the bone, and I don't know the specifics of it, but basically it essentially... Um, there's leaching, um, like say through water action of chemicals and probably the collagen in bone. So collagen is like the protein content, some of the protein content, and it's what makes bone flexible. It's what gives it a bit of bend. So that's leached out and other chemicals are brought in and it basically hardens the bone into something more like rock. Yeah. So, but that does take time. It's not going to happen overnight. And I don't know what the youngest fossil out there is, but um, anything dealing with modern humans is going to be bone. And when we say modern humans, how old are modern humans? Anatomically, modern humans have been around for about 200,000 years. I saw on, I think it was on Twitter, um, I came across this article, and it was showing that there's been a bird found. I can't remember where or when, but there was a a fossil of a bird found that had breathed in ash, because it Mm. obviously had died during a volcanic eruption. Okay. And because it had been able to breathe in, they think, that because it, it had breathed in this ash, the lungs hadn't had time to decompose, so they fossilized. So there's not... I don't, mm. I don't know how that would really work, but they, the lungs, for some reason, they never really find organic sort of soft tissue mm-hmm. that, um, as fossils, but because of this sort of weird scenario, yeah. and it was buried in this ash cloud, yeah. um, they actually found this... Yeah, with the fossilized soft tissue. That's No, that's interesting. Yeah, and I guess there are certain circumstances where maybe something could be even captured. You think of Pompeii, right? Where you have the bones that remain, but you have kind of the casts of the people that were captured by basically a volcanic event. But yeah, I don't I don't know about this bird, but that sounds really interesting. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> yeah, I'll put it. I'll uh, I'll send you mm. a link. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, you were going to tell me about the other favorite place that you've worked. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'll tell you about the other favorite place. So there were the hunter gatherers at Lake Baikal, which mm-hmm. were really interesting. And uh, I second place I worked was Jordan. And um, so I worked on a pre-pottery Neolithic A site. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's about eleven thousand years ago. I helped excavate at what would be called or could be thought of as a small village, essentially a small village site. How many people live in a small village? Well, here we don't know exactly because um, some of it has uh, some of what was the site has probably been eroded away. So Mm. we don't know exactly how big it, it would have been at the time. But we have some of the first permanent architecture, basically. And so these people are still hunter-gatherers, so they're moving around the landscape, but they're building some permanent structures that they come back to every now and again. So we see events where, you know, you have a floor, and then you tend to have ash and stuff come in, and you have periods of disuse, and then you find another floor again. So they're coming, they're living in the area, or in the village, for a period of time and then going away. So it's not like they only ever live in this one place. So is that like a nomadic lifestyle that they come around once every couple of years? Uh, Yeah, I'm not quite sure of the periods uh, in between occupations. Um, I'm not sure if if that research or that analysis has been done yet. But um, I think when you... I don't know if you can use nomadic because that might have particular meaning in and of itself. But they were basically... They were out hunting animals, but what they were also doing is they were collecting wild grains that would soon become domesticates. Oh, wow. So in this partic- at this particular site, they were collecting wild barley, and in the process of doing that, over time, that changes it into a domesticated form like we have today. So these are the people who ushered in agriculture. Um, they were kind of the experimenters, and how much they realized they were actually doing or not, they were modifying the plants around them to become more, I guess, human-friendly in a way. Um, They probably were easier to process, probably produce more of the grain that you're looking for. And so we find hearths that have vegetable matter with burned pieces of barley, example. Uh, for example. And so this particular site, it has burials within the site itself as well. That's why I went out there. But it's, we found, I I guess I have to say it's um, a lot, when you do archaeology, a lot of people ask you, what's the coolest thing you ever found? And so for me, it's this at the site. And so um, people didn't have houses like you think of now with you know, five different rooms in a bathroom or something. Um, they were basically like one round room. And there was um, kind of a room or a structure that we excavated. And when they got down to the floor level, they found um, some instruments associated with food processing. So you had like mortar and pestles. You had a raised hearth with still burned vegetable matter in it. And what was really interesting about this house is that it was intentionally closed. So it was intentionally kind of collapsed in on itself and under one of the walls, it was like a day or two before we were supposed to leave. 
we started to take up the wall and we found a woman buried under the wall. And so basically we had the context where we had a woman who lived about 11,000 years ago. We had the tools that she used to process the plant materials and effectively this woman's kind of a revolutionary figure, whether she knew it or not, she was ushering in agriculture, which has changed the way we live today. I mean, it's why you can go down to Sainsbury's and, you know, get your tomatoes and, (laughs) and your couscous, you know, it's, um, so why was she buried there like that? Was she, was she, did she have a disease and they wanted to close it in on her? Um, I don't, no, I, you, you know, um, there was, as far as I remember, there was nothing remarkable about her skeleton that would indicate a disease process or a reason for collapsing her house like that. It was ceremonial in some sense, but why? I don't know if we'll ever know because it's so far in the past yeah. and there's no kind of written record. It's so interesting about sort of when agriculture came came about and started. So you're saying 11,000 years ago in Jordan? That's one of the centers of agriculture. Yeah, so... Did it start in other places as well at the yeah. same time or independently? Uh, yeah, it, it started independently in different locations. Um, China is one of them, for example. All agriculture. around the same sort of era? I believe it's around the same sort of time. And it's... Um, yeah, so agriculture seems to have cropped up around a relatively similar time period. And it probably has to do with the change in um, the environment around that time so um is it like around an ice age then no 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 or it's uh, no the with the holocene the yeah yeah with the holocene for you do tend to get some um, warming more lakes it, it might become wetter i'm not quite sure um it, it probably varies by where you are geographically but it seems to become more amenable to domesticating plants um you don't find that for example, in that area of Siberia where I excavated because the um, climate never became really amenable to... Um, it's too damn cold in Siberia. It's too damn cold in Siberia, exactly. Yeah. exactly. There's evidence, for example, in the Baltics that there are hunter-gatherers that have contact with people who are agriculturalists. Mm. But you're not necessarily going to choose agriculture if your way of life is going really well. You know, if you've grown up in a culture with a particular way of life, a particular economic system, it seems to work well and you know it, you're not necessarily going to change that just because somebody is growing some grains further to the south. You kind of need to be convinced in a sense that this is a better way of living. If there's an environmental pressure on you, that'll make you change rather than just changing for the sake of it. Yeah, yeah. And, And, you know, there's a question of what is agriculture as well. And up in some of the northern groups, um, some people argue there's incipient agriculture, which so there's what? incipient agriculture. So there's okay. basically this long protracted period where there's not agriculture as we know it, but they seem to be harvesting and managing wild um, plants and animals in a way that might be thought of a form of agriculture. It's just not barley and rice like we think about it. It's not you know, domesticated goats and sheep, but they're maybe gathering water chestnuts to kind of feed pig populations and they're managing like kind wild. of stock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. So it's 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 not 
the agriculture we think of in a traditional sense, but there might be kind of um, a different form of it going on in northern groups. Now, I heard a theory mm. that agriculture was the start of sort of modern civilizations, sort of people living together in mass groups because we were able to then we're able to feed enough people in a mm. smaller area. So a lot of people can live together then. And the precursor to that, the reason that people decided that agriculture was a, a good way to go was because they started making beer. <laughs> yeah. It's it's the question, was it bread or beer? <laughs> <laughs> oh, bread, okay. Yeah. yeah, no, no, there is the idea that... Um, agriculture kind of developed around beer and that'd be great that's <laughs> yeah. true. i know it'd be pretty awesome wouldn't it i think there's a place in tooting that serves or at least there used to be that served it was like bread and beer all in like they made fresh bread and they you know it was a brewery and Brilliant. basically there's your beginnings right there in tooting <laughs> who knew but yeah there's a the idea that beer might have kind of happened first um it, it might have been more of an accidental process that you got this fermentation but uh, it's probably safer than water. Um, you're not necessarily going to have the same issues with parasites or diseases because I guess the alcohol kills off. Yeah. Kills those things off. So beer might have been the reason <laughs> why agriculture started. There is that it's line like the of thought. The bad, drink some more Drink beer. the beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Yeah. I, I would like to see that. Like, as as uh, I think that's a great way to think about the beginning of agriculture. It's a great advertising slogan <laughs> yeah, as well. No, why isn't no one? Why has no one done it? But you do see some um, some breweries, some beer companies that are uh, making old styles of beer. So, for example, what's the name of that? Innocent Gun. Oh right. <laughs> yeah, they used. I think they worked with archaeologists up in the. Was it up in the Orkney Islands? There were some excavations up there, and they found these kind of ceramic vessels, like big pots. Hmm. And they did analysis of the inside of the pot, and they found basically that they were brewing beer. And so Innocent Gun worked with whoever was up there to get kind of an idea of what would have been in the beer at the time, and they tried brewing these particular types of beer. I think I tried one called Hot Rocks, and it was pretty good. Mm -hmm. From what I remember. Yeah. But a couple of different places are doing that. Uh, I'm quite interested on the brain development of humans. So I heard that the brain has developed, I think it was, it doubled in size over the course of, they're not sure, it's between what, 2 million and 200,000 years. Are okay. there any theories that you know of that, that explain sort of the... The development of the brain, yeah. like why our brains are big? The jump in sort of human <coughs> con- uh, cognition. Yeah, I mean, there's something called the social brain hypothesis, which there are a couple different reasons why the brain might have gotten bigger and might have been able to get bigger. Um, One is a change in diet or basically the access to more meat and the ability to digest meat more easily. Mm. So um, basically with more energy, you can support a bigger brain. Right, so that would allow the brain to grow, but I think part of the idea is um, that brain development or the increase in brain size probably happened with increase in population size, as well. Um, so if you're 
what does that mean then? If you're talking to more people, then you have to make more connections, so your brain's growing. Yeah, I think I think a lot of a lot of the um, theory comes around sociality, like um, social connections. You know, certain parts of the brain become more predominant that have to do with language, for example. We have quite, <laughs> excuse me, we have quite large brains for an animal of our size, mm. but I don't know how much size matters <laughs> you could say yeah, yeah. well I've heard in, that, in a sense right i've heard that um cats yeah have a sort of similar size brain in relation to their size yeah than we do but you don't see cats yeah in a sort of well they haven't built houses and civilizations yeah. have they so i think a lot of it's about kind of the connections that are made mm. um the capacity for more um maybe constructive creative thought i think neanderthals had quite a large brain as well for their body size and they weren't necessarily i mean i don't i think i think neanderthals were probably quite bright um i think they've gotten a bad rap through time (laughs) (laughs) you know um they were making tools there is evidence or people are arguing there's evidence for art you know they were able to survive in a harsh environment they were able to communicate with and breed with modern humans um and that's proven yeah through through dna studies so i don't i don't want to knock neanderthals by any means but um you know i i think a lot of it has to do with the connections uh that are made in the brain and it's not necessarily dependent on size but that that's just a guess on my part how many different types of humans were there who knows how many actually how many species there were at this point, we don't know. And part of it's the fossil record's really spotty. You know, it, it takes a lot for something to fossilize. Mm. And then it takes a lot for us to find it. <laughs> it's like a needle in the haystack, you know, effectively. Yeah. Yeah. So on speciation, if you're going to diverge, <laughs> yeah. how long? Say, um, if there hadn't have been the land bridge in mm. between uh, Russia and America... That's a bad example, isn't it? Because that's how mm. we got there. So it, when once that land, once the land bridge between mm. America and Russia closed, mm. if they those two populations had not met again, how long would it take before yeah. they turn into two, two separate species of humans? It would vary by context, effectively. So, for example, if you have a small population that gets split off, oftentimes the speciation will probably be quicker because you have a small population to work with. Right. And the genetic changes carry through quite quickly. Um, That's what happened in sort of the, the Galapagos when every different island had a different type of... Oh, Darwin found the finches? The finches, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were basically um, exploiting different kind of habitats. Different niches. Different yeah. niches within the islands. But recently, there was some work done on, on finches down in the Galapagos, and there was one bird that came from far away. <laughs> I'm not quite sure where. They were quite shocked, I believe. But it came in and bred with a Good lady finch. finch and produced offspring that seemed to... There's a difference, I think. They wonder in the mating call or something along those lines, but it doesn't seem to be interbreeding necessarily with the finches in the area. So it might be... They're effect- they're saying it's it's basically an example of quite rapid speciation, on um, basically at a rate that 
is quite quick for a large species, a larger species. We're not talking about microorganisms, which tend to... So are we talking just a, a few generations then? Maybe even just one. And you've got a new species? I believe. But yeah, it's it's a quite um, rapid speciation event. Yeah, that's crazy. Down there. So, and it's kind of cool. It was found in the Galapagos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, an ode to Darwin, I suppose. Mm. But yeah, speciation, it, it really depends on um, geographic isolation, how big the population is or how small the population is. So a smaller population has less genetic variability and it will diverge a lot faster if a gene changes. But, you know, there are lots of questions of what is a species as well. Is there a proper definition of that then, or is it quite a gray area? It's kind of a gray area in a way. So what a species is varies by who who's interested in what kind of question. So, for example, normally species aren't able to interbreed. That's a very common definition of what a species is. But when you go back and you look at human evolution, um, species are often defined by morphology or, or the way that the bones look. So when some, something looks different, then the assumption is that you have a new species. Right. But now, you know, you look at Neanderthals, you look at modern humans you know, there is a difference in the morphology, but they're able to interbreed. So how do you define a species, really? You, it, it, it really depends on what kind of information you have and what kind of I heard, questions you're trying I, to answer. I think I remember from school that the, the definition I was given was if two animals can breed and produce a fertile offspring, then they're not a new species. Yeah. Yeah, but, but how do you do that with with fossils, right? So right. how do you right? So you have to kind of look at differences in shape, and we assume that those translate to a lack of interbreeding. But I think DNA in in modern humans and Neanderthals and Denisovans are starting to challenge that concept of a species although you know you can only do so much with what you have and a lot of those fossilized species you're not going to necessarily get dna from those so a minute ago i was asking about the rate of growth of the human brain yeah and i suppose the reason i did that that was because i heard a theory and they call it the stoned ape theory. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> I think I have. And I th- <laughs> go ahead and explain it. So <laughs> I might be getting some things wrong with this, but apparently the theory goes like this. The As the monkeys decided to come out of the jungle and venture onto the grasslands, they would eat mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And some of these mushrooms would be psilocybin mm-hmm. mushrooms. And... Psilocybin is a natural, uh, it's natural inside us, it's mm-hmm. part of our brain chemistry, and it's a, it's a, it's a neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. Because they have eaten these psilocybin mushrooms, tripped out, Yeah, they have an increase in the amount of psilocybin, and then, I'm not sure how this works, but somehow down the generations, that has increased the ability, or the ability of neural networks to, to mm-hmm. increase somehow do you see any credibility to that? <laughs> no <laughs> not at all 
not? <laughs> I, I don't, it sounds great, but why not? I think it makes for a really good story. Yeah. But I don't think there's any way to to actually look for that kind of evidence. And I mean, cats trip out on on uh, catnip. <laughs> but yeah. They're not like making the same leaps and bounds necessarily. Well, I, it was over 200,000 years, so I'll... Yeah. Oh, however long it was. So yeah. I imagine the only way to to see if that actually works is do another experiment and find a species, feed it lots of <laughs> mushrooms. So. Yeah. No, I think I think <laughs> I think that makes for a very colourful theory, but I, I, I would tend to ascribe more to you know, increasing social groups, use of language, yeah. um, you know, the ability to actually like maintain a large brain um, physiologically as well. And, you know, we're, we're one of the really cool things about humans is we're a generalist species. So we go into all kinds of different environments. So, generalist meaning? Meaning that we exploit all kinds of different environments so we're not stuck in one place we're not stuck in the tropics we're not stuck on the tops of mountains very adaptable we're very adaptable you know we eat a wide range of foods Um, we have different ways of procuring things based on where we are and what's available um we've we're quite varied actually in what we can do and we're able to adapt to so many different places and I, you know, that requires some smarts too, because you have to be able to know how to, or learn how to exploit these various environments, how to stay safe, etc. Yeah. Yeah. I always find it uh, amazing how people's diets can be so varied yet still, we all, we still look pretty much the same. Like the, yeah. the Inuits, can survive pretty much on no vegetables ever. They survive on whale and seal, Mm. which are very fat-heavy. Yeah, But Um, they actually have a genetic adaptation to be able to do that. Do they? Yeah, yeah. So genetically, they're adapted to be able to be able to live on that type of diet. If we tried to go up there and do it, we get a lot more ill <laughs> than okay. they would yeah so but, they're, they're a bit they're a step closer to turning into a new species <laughs> no i wouldn't go that far at all <laughs> in fact in fact i don't know if this is true i don't know if this is true but at one point in time the only group that you could pick out genetically were redheads <laughs> how do you mean, how I know, do you they, mean? they had a, a, a different variation based a uh, different genetic variant I guess, associated with hair color. They're starting to be able to extract more things from DNA. For example, they're able to, I believe they're able to look at eye color. But one of the big things that people kind of need to know is that you can't determine race from DNA. There's no genetic difference between people of different skin color. And in fact, there's no dividing line between skin colors themselves i had a really um but you might be able to you could tell hair color and possibly eye color but you yeah. can't tell skin color yeah so it's one of the big things in biological anthropology you know i i had a um a professor once who told a great story <laughs> really about you know if you were on a boat traveling down the nile river you know you'd see people going from Uh, lighter skin to darker skin which is an adaptation to sunlight basically or a lack of sunlight and if you were to travel on this boat there would be no place where one person 
you know, on one side of the line, they were white and on the other side, they were black, for example. Can you just explain that adaptation for us? Um, yeah, yeah. So basically skin color is, is an adaptation to um, the amount of sunlight. So we need to produce vitamin D and we need to protect our skin from the sun. Um, so in places with um, a lot of sunlight, strong sunlight, you tend to have darker skin. It protects against the intense sun. Um, but you're also able to produce that vitamin D. When you start getting into more northern climates, there's less sunlight. Um, so you tend to have lighter skin to be able to turn that sunlight into vitamin D. So it's, it's really a, an adaptation to environment. I mean, again, humans are such a sliding scale. Right. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, they talk about race but there's really no such thing you have adaptations to different environments but people are people yeah sure yeah do you have you seen the advancements in technology make it much of a difference in what you're able to find out so for example dna testing i think is probably a lot more affordable so you're able to do it on more material than you would have been able to in the past for example and the amount of data has expanded. So you're able to do probably more in-depth analyses of genetic relationships. One example I was thinking about was Mm. that they started using drones to fly over. Oh, yeah. They found new Mayan settlements. Yeah, drones um, and satellite imagery Mm. actually are being used. So I don't specifically use any of those. Um, the company I work for does a bit of drone work yeah. in some situations. Um, but yeah, you can, you can do more general surveys of the landscape and you can see, usually it's shapes that mm. don't look natural, for example. So you might see something circular and, you or know, a, a lot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you don't normally see that just crop up in nature. And, you know, there are people who are using things like Google Earth to try and find sites in different areas of the world. So and is that it's, working? Yeah, it does. It tends to work. Um, I don't know if it works everywhere, but I've heard of it in different environments where it has worked. More desert environments, more jungle environments. And okay. London's different. I mean, people have been living here for a very long time. And you just dig down and you find, you know, you'll find stuff deeper you go the older it is <laughs> yeah exactly but there are some places where sites are more sparsely located around the landscape or where people might have lived somewhere for just a little bit and then moved away so you don't get that big build up in archaeology so finding archaeological sites can take a lot of time but if you're able to kind of have that bird's eye view you might be able to pick out things much more quickly and and focus your work on actual archaeology instead of trying to find it. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Do, what are the sort of new advancements, or the, like, what sort of new technology is there around, or what are you looking forward to in the field? Is oh. there much coming through? It's not new, new, but I think one uh, one interesting advancement is looking at. So for a lot of the technology that I'm more familiar with centers around modern humans and their skeletons. Um, 
but they're starting to look at plaque or calculus, so the stuff that builds up on your teeth. Right. And um, what they're able. Tell you. Um, apparently, about disease. So you do get some bacteria that gets stuck in the teeth, and they can identify it to look at different types of disease states. The exact diseases, I'm not sure, but. So would that bacteria still be there a couple of thousand years yeah. later? Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. Yeah. So you're able to look at maybe some of the things people have had. Because in, in human bones, you don't always see what people died from. So it doesn't always, diseases don't always affect the bones. So you can say somebody died and you might be able to approximate an age range, but you might not be able to say why. And so looking at the calculus in the teeth, you might be able to get a better idea of what somebody might have not necessarily what they died from, but some of the diseases that they had, how healthy they were, which I think is a really interesting way of, of looking at general health in the past. Yeah, it's a whole new element. Yeah. It? Is there evidence of people caring for maybe disabled or yeah. the ill from, from quite a long time ago? Yeah, I mean, you have, it, you have it from quite a long time ago. You have it in Neanderthals, for wow. example. So you have... Um, individuals who would have been disabled, who would have had problems eating or moving through the landscape, hunting, that sort of thing, um, in order to survive, group members would have had to have helped them in some way. And I've seen it in some of the places where I've excavated. So right now I'm thinking of the Siberian site. There were people with what would be considered disabilities who would have probably had, let's say, a more challenging time and there's probably an element of care in helping these people survive yeah, sure. into into adulthood. Yeah, there's definitely problems with with healthcare and that sort of mm. thing in today's society. It could be better, but if you're comparing it to what happened, say, what uh, eleven thousand years ago, you'd really yeah. need your your family or your clan yeah. to to stick around and to help you out, wouldn't you? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you can't go to the grocery store necessarily. No. <laughs> so you have to you have to be able to procure food somehow. And if you can't do it yourself, then at the very least, you need somebody to help you. Like we were saying earlier before, we won't, you know, we, we have been, we still are prey sometimes, you know, you still hear of someone being killed by a shark or a bear or a bobcat. If you have something that impedes you from being able to get away quickly... Um, you do need people around you to be able to help protect you as well. Have you, I don't know if you saw that nature documentary, apparently killer whales do this as well. There was a disabled killer whale. It mm. had sort of a, a bent tail. Yeah. And do you call it a matriarch in the in a killer whale pod? Yeah. I think so. So the leader would mm-hmm. kill fish and then drop them. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's footage of it dropping it and then... The, uh, the disabled one yeah. would go along behind the pack and that's so cool see, yeah that's so cool yeah I think you know the thing is people people we're, we're animals you know we're we're mammals we're part of the great ape family um, along with chimps and bonobos and gorillas and we kind of always think we're special <laughs> and, and that we're different and in some ways we are, maybe in matters of degrees or, or how far we take things. But there are other species that, you know, use tools 
or that help care for the disabled. And I think for me, what's really fascinating is, is finding that in, in other species and maybe it's, it's busting that myth of how special we are. I find really fascinating, Mm. you know, bats do a lot of tit for tat where they keep, keep an eye on like if a, if a bat hasn't gotten enough blood you know, they'll, they'll kind of get blood from another bat and if it doesn't pay it back, you know, these, the, a score is like, there are scores and tallies taken and, and how much one bat's willing to help another, you know, and so we've got debt yeah, exactly. I, I, I just, I think, yeah, I think it's fascinating to look at in a way how common we are with the rest of the animal world, the natural world. Yeah. I suppose a lot of what we do is just natural sort of animal instincts. Mm. We're still driven, I think, by a lot of that. We have we have our brains where we can make different decisions, maybe than what instinct tries to drive us to do. But you know, there are still some of those very basic instincts instilled in us. That's not going away anytime soon. Yeah, there is definitely something special about us, though. the The numbers that we are able to live in, and mm. the our sort of creativity and ingenuity. The amount of people there are that are designing new ways for yep. us to live and new innovations for us to be able to cook food easier or to uh, mm-hmm. to live in a more comfortable place. Comfortable is not always better. But yeah, <laughs> it's um, the the progression and the creativity and the innovation that we have is yeah. just something that I uh, I don't think I can sort of compare us to no. another another animal. Like no, that. we're different. Well, I'm. I don't want to say we're different, but in a matter of scale, yeah. we definitely excel. I mean, and again, we've moved into all these. It's one of the reason why we can live here in England and also in the Arctic and also in the tropics mm. is because of our ability to innovate and kind of exploit and really thrive in different environments. And part of it is that ingenuity. And part of that's due to our big brain. <laughs> Although yeah. I don't, again, I don't know how much size matters, but probably those neural connections I would think would, would be driving a lot of that, but I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't really comment. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we're fascinating. It's also fascinating. I think human modern human behavior is really interesting. I think, um, we still do a lot of things that are part of our, our nature that was driven by evolution. We have behaviors that I think, you know, we go, we go about and we even expand upon them and, and we don't really think about that. It's this evolutionary urge that we're just kind of embellishing, I suppose, to a certain extent, like wearing makeup for attractiveness, for example, or buying sported cars to show off status. And these are things you know, sexual attraction, status, etc. They work in other areas of the animal kingdom. I suppose we know on some level, don't we? Because they, they call it peacocking, don't they? Yeah. When, when you wear something brightly coloured to attract yeah. the attention, it doesn't have to be of a mate, but I suppose that's essentially where it comes from. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. We just do it on a whole different level and in weird ways sometimes. Um, but I think... Um, 
yeah, we're very much still driven by our animal nature, but we just, we just kind of couch it within culture now. Do you think that's, that's detrimental to us as a species in some ways? Um, like, do we still do things? Oh, I'm pretty sure we all do things yeah. that, that give us instant gratification. But if you think about the long term effects, yeah. it's not maybe the best course of action. Yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, I think, yeah, you can look at things that kind of tap in to the systems that we have that drive, say, pleasure, for example, you know, recreational drugs, alcohol, all those things. And they might act on parts of our brain that in ways seem really amazing, but from a health point of view, <laughs> it's it's probably not your best course of action. Or eating really fatty foods. Yeah, there are probably a lot of things that we do do that are probably not um, the smartest for our survival, <laughs> but there's something pleasurable in them. Yeah, so we'll keep mm-hmm. doing them. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of a shame. <laughs> but at the same time... It's fascinating, though. It's it's interesting. It is, it is very yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Is there any research going on at the moment that's exciting you? Oh, it's been a little while since I've been in the research world, or, to or be like, honest. Or, or uh, digs in certain areas of the, yeah. of the world. Yeah. I, um, let me think for a moment. I, like I said, it's, it's, it's been a while. I think the research, for example, on the Denisovans and finding, um, kind of, a mixed species heritage is a really fascinating research, mm. um, showing us that different groups were crossing paths and having relationships and, you know, um, mingling i suppose uh, i i find that really fascinating um that's a, that's a funny one actually that one because when i was at when i was at school or when mm. i was young i always remember thinking that in the past we had monkeys and then neanderthals and mm. then we they were replaced by us Mm-mm. and everyone is quite familiar with that the picture of there's a monkey and yeah then there's a few other pictures and then eventually you get to a man holding a spear yeah so that was my that picture, I suppose, encapsulates what my perception mm. of human evolution was. Mm. Yeah, but it's not like that at all. No, it's not. It's not. There's not one branch. They say that it's not like one branch. It's like a bush. <laughs> so uh-huh. you have like all these different little species that sprout out all over the place. Um, the other thing is that evolution isn't. It's not one directional. It's not aiming for a, spe- a specific goal mm. it's it's a reaction to the environment and what promotes survival and that's what's passed on so it can there's no real purpose i mean kind of from our D- darwinian standpoint the idea is to get your genes into the next generation you want kind of genetic survival yeah um, that's the drive to procreate basically to have offspring but there's no real point to evolution in the sense that it's trying to go somewhere or get to a particular state of perfection it's not trying to get there it's just what inevitably happens yeah it's a it's a response basically to the environment and and your fitness within that environment 
what characteristics make one individual more successful than the other, those things will be passed on. And then that might change in, you know, the next environment that's, that something moves into. So there's no, there's no end goal. It's just basically, it's basically about survival and passing your genes on, but that success is driven by a reaction to the environment you're in. Yeah. It's just a, it's a different way to think about things, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So humans are really successful right now, but we're modifying the environment to quite an extent, right? You say successful though. Yeah. Successful in the terms of there's a lot of us. billion of us. Yeah. You could say then that chickens are quite successful or cows are quite successful, but yeah. I suppose what's the measure of success if it's sheer numbers, then they are. Um, if it's quality of life, then... No, uh, probably not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm t- I, success. I mean, more from an evolutionary perspective, and that's just. I mean, humans are everywhere. We've really been able to adapt to different environments and thrive. But yeah, quality of life is a different question, and you know, we've been successful in infiltrating all these different environments, but also look what we're doing to them, <laughs> right? And what we're doing as far as climate change and environmental contamination that might very well drive the next round of adaptations, right? It might very much be our downfall as a species. The thing is, is that it's not that anything stops evolving. Like I say, it's, it's a constant reaction to kind of the environmental factors around and how successful you are at getting your genes into the next generation and and environments change. So, for example, um, one of the big examples of more recent human evolution is, or evolutionary change, is the adaptation to being able to drink milk past childhood, right? We can digest it, and that's an adaptation to kind of a, a shift to agriculture, but not all populations have that. And that's only come about since agriculture. Yeah. Yeah, but we we could very much fail as a species at some point. We could eventually turn into something that's very different from what we are today, um, depending on the factors in the future, um, what comes about. So I don't know how long humans will be around. Um, again, we could continue to be successful. We could be our own worst enemy in the end, and... If we fall, something else will rise, you know, to kind of fill in these niches around us. Yeah, it's like we're not at the end point. We're no. somewhere in the middle of a story. Yeah, exactly. And that story will continue, you know, indefinitely until, I don't know, until some, the earth goes yeah. <laughs> in one way or the other. Until the sun disappears. Yeah. It's yeah. really cool, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 like, I like putting us in our place as an animal species in this world because you have a different perspective of how we fit into the environment around us and kind of what we're doing here and, and where we might be going instead of thinking of us as this static thing, static being. So from, from the research that you've done or maybe been involved in, mm. what things can you tell, tell us about the skeleton? <laughs> Well, the skeleton's really cool, <laughs> for one. <laughs> um, excuse me. It's 
it's always adapting throughout your life, which is interesting. So for example, the shape of some of your bones changes based on the activities you do. It's not, it doesn't change overnight doing one activity, but if you do something quite a bit, especially when you're a bit younger, you can see what you call habitual activity patterns. So for example, if you're a long distance runner, you're the bones in your legs will be shaped a bit differently than if you're, um, say, a field hockey player. When you say shaped a bit differently, mm. is that in a positive way? Or yeah. like your muscles, if you go to the gym, they get bigger because they're adapting to what you're doing with them. So if you're a long-distance runner, your bones will become sturdier? Yeah, so for example, if you're if you're always running... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, basically, yeah. Um, the bones become strengthened in a way, like the shape. It's not your, that your bones will be so different in shape you can't recognize it's the same bone by any means. The the differences will be kind of a bit more subtle, and you can um, identify them, you know, through different types of analysis, shape analysis. But if you're a long distance runner, you're the bones in your leg, for example, like your femur, your upper thigh bone, will be more elongated front to back because you're always kind of going in a forward direction. But if you're a field hockey player and you're always stopping, starting, moving left, right, forward, backward, then your bone is going to be less kind of elongated front to back and more equal all around because you're putting... Stress and strain, yeah, as you kind of in different directions. Another classic example is tennis players. You know, if you have a dominant hand and you're playing tennis all the time, that arm bone is going to be much more robust that you're always hitting the ball with (laughs) than the other side. Now, you're not going to be able to see a difference. Like, if you walk up to somebody, um, you know, it's not like one arm is going to look really different than the other. (laughs) But when you look at the bones, you can see that one's sturdier for that kind of constant activity so from an archaeology perspective you could tell 2,000 years ago if someone was a right-handed tennis player (laughs) yeah exactly I think I've seen that on bones before which drove me nuts that show but uh um you can see you can see for example groups that are maybe more mobile versus sedentary so if they move more across the environment versus if they're just kind of staying put so does that mean, so in in an in a individual population, you can tell who the hunter and gatherers were and who the... Yeah, theor- theoretically, if you had some people who, who just stayed in camp and some people who did all the long distance travel, you see a difference between the two. And sometimes you can see that in... So if if in in a group, say, males and females are doing different things, then you'll see differences in the bone shape. So if one part of that population is more mobile than the other you'll see those differences if you know you have seafaring populations you see really robust arms that's associated with paddling quite a bit for example it's not that you can say necessarily that somebody was sewing a lot while somebody was you know kicking a ball but you can see that there are these differences and based on these populations these are likely the activities that they were engaging in that created these changes in bone and differences in bone shape. Are there any other areas that you want to talk about that you're really interested in? Mm. I guess um, 
I guess just the one thing I'd really say is that, especially living over here in London, um, because I come obviously from my accent from North America, (laughs) but history is just so much, there's so much more depth to the history here. It's so much more visible as well. So if you are over here (laughs) and you're walking around London, for example, I think it's a really cool feeling to know that there's so much history below your feet (laughs) Um, that maybe you don't think about. Mm. And, um, you know, some of the lanes that you walk down have been lanes for, you know, people tend to respect boundaries quite a bit. Um, And those lanes have probably been lanes for hundreds of years, if not more. Moving across your everyday environment in some of these places, think about all the people who've passed before you and all the things they've built and all the things they've dumped (laughs) below your feet. It's quite, I don't know. I find it quite impressive. That's me. Yeah. It's sort of humbling to, to feel part of something so big that this, yeah, this is just a short, you're here for just a short snapshot of, of human history. Yeah. I suppose you're able to find out a little bit more than most of us what's mm-hmm. going on or what has gone on in the last few hundred, few thousand years. Yeah, it's it's really cool to dig it up <laughs> because you get to kind of, I, I, I kind of tell people I liken it to being a five-year-old. You know, I get to dig in the dirt and discover things. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a little bit more than that. I mean, you kind of have to know how to excavate properly and how to document things properly. But then, like I said, you get, it's an incomplete puzzle. And what you kind of do is you deconstruct it in order to f- find out how to reconstruct it, right. really, um, to understand how people were using the landscape and what they were doing in their, you know, their daily lives in the past. I mean, if... I don't know. You can think about things that you do on a daily basis and some, maybe you have a house and you decide to put on an extension or make a change and, and that's going to be recorded possibly in history, you know, or maybe you walk down a muddy track and it dries and then gets covered over and your footprints get recorded. I mean, that would be pretty impressive. (laughs) That doesn't happen everywhere, but (laughs) like these things can get, you but, know, but caught in time, that like that pe- that period. Yeah, it's happened. It, it has happened in the past, and including here in England, I think they found footprints on uh, on the shoreline that's maybe associated with Homo antecessor, which is a human ancestor. I think they're thinking, what was it? Maybe if memory serves me correctly, about eight hundred thousand years ago, I believe. Fact, wow. fact check that one, <laughs> but um footprints do get captured and it's you know someone's just walking all of a sudden that becomes part of the record that could have been one of our ancestors yeah you know maybe you um maybe you throw something in a little trash pit and guess what somebody's gonna find it way down the line i have to say one of the things one of the best places to find stuff are in old cesspits Which I know sounds disgusting, <laughs> but um, because it was gross, people didn't want to go in after stuff. So you find like, you know, you might find coins or you find like intact, like nice pieces of 
like pottery and how long do you have to wait before it it's not disgusting to go through <laughs> i don't know <laughs> it's i don't know for some people i think it will always be disgusting <laughs> i mean maybe you just kind of dissociate a little bit and don't think about it but do you still get the the smell from no that that goes pretty quick no no yeah you don't really well i know some people have excavated some smelly bits <laughs> that were maybe a couple hundred years old but you know the stuff that i've excavated some of it's been more what like 18th century probably maybe 19th century there's no there's no whiff to it there's a bit of a greenish color but that's about it (laughs) (laughs) so but they're they're actually some of the best places to find stuff if people want to learn a little bit more about archaeology where would you point them there's a lot of stuff on TV now. It seems to have become quite a popular topic. I used to w- read Archaeology magazine <laughs> back in the day. There are also, um, you know, depending on where you live, there are lots of sites that you can visit, whether they're community archaeology digs or they're um, historical sites. Uh, and you can start learning about the history around, just around you as well. Well, you can go and sort of get involved. Uh, some places will do community-based digs. They'll have community volunteers. You can also, if you're in London, and I haven't done it, but you can go mudlarking, um, is, which is where you go down onto the shore of the Thames and you look. You can't dig. You're not allowed to dig, but you can look for stuff along the shore. And so in London, you find lots of like um, parts of clay or like clay tobacco pipes that they used to smoke. So they're basically kind of like one hitters. <laughs> they came packed with tobacco and you bought you bought the pipe with the tobacco and you'd smoke it and then you'd chuck it. So we find so many clay tobacco pipes and you can find them along the waterfront. Um all kinds of things wash around, so that's you can kind of I don't know, do your own little archaeology adventure, <laughs> I suppose down there, awesome. but don't dig. <laughs> Just look, but um also, if you're in London and you want to mm. find a new clay pipe, yeah. <laughs> a new old clay pipe, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I would be wary of stuff on the web. Not all of it. There, are, I'm sure, a lot of reputable sources, um, reputable sources. But watch out for the ones that say that aliens <laughs> built something or. There are a lot of conspiracy theories out there as well, so make sure you vet your sources. And um... we haven't talked about any conspiracy theories so far. No, we haven't, <laughs> except for the uh, stone ape theory, which I was <laughs> saying <laughs> verges on a conspiracy theory. <laughs> can't but... prove that that's wrong. <laughs> oh yeah, well that's one of those things <laughs> that just kind of. Oh, I I know one one other thing I. I think is really interesting. Shoot. Looking at modern humans and their behavior and their relationships is really interesting. How Um, how do you mean? I think because we're a generalist species, we need to be quite adaptable and we learn how to interact with people around us when we're quite young. um, So that the way that we form attachments and the way we interact with people is very much shaped by our early childhood. And I think that dovetails really nicely with this idea of evolution and of being a generalist species and having to go into new environments and having to get along in your social group. So I think that 
some modern psychology, especially associated with things like attachment theory, make a lot of sense within the scope of evolutionary theory. I don't know. It just it's it seems to make sense and dovetail quite nicely. Do you um, think that's the same in it would be the same in all cultures or yeah. in different indigenous populations? Yeah. Um, say deep in the Amazon who we haven't discovered yet yeah. do you think that they would have the same sort of uh, attachment like kind of behaviours or yeah. set kind of set of trait like yeah. behaviours and stuff the same attachment behaviours sort of built yeah. into you I, I would think so I mean I there's there are going to be cultural influences on everything but I think we've spent so long evolving as a social species that there are probably some building blocks that are going to be consistent across groups if that makes sense Mm. so i think there's probably a spectrum of ways we can adapt and respond but i think they're probably within a certain set of constraints based on just our evolutionary history and being human itself but um that's an area that actually you were at you were asking what things interest me now out there and that's that's something I've been th- thinking about a lot. Human behavior, I think, is quite interesting. How can you learn more f- from more about that through archaeology? Oh, that's a good question. Or can you? Or is, it, yeah. or is it studying current human? Yeah, more current. Yeah, more current human behavior and relationships. Um, I don't know how you necessarily. I'd have to think about that. How you do that through archaeology? I guess the way I think about it is looking at evolutionary theory and seeing how that sets up kind of um, the framework for human behavior or the possible outcomes that you can have of human behavior, human reactions, the way that you think about things or um, communicate with other people the types of relationships you can have. Do you think that humans have always been monogamous? Not all humans are monogamous (laughs) by any means. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think, um, I think we have a tendency, well, kind of the idea is that there's this tendency towards serial monogamy where you have one partner for a while. Right. And like, it's like dating, right? You, you maybe date one person, it doesn't work out. You date another person. It's not lifelong pair bonding. Like you have, I don't know, some birds and for example, like when they mate, that's it. That's their partner. Humans aren't like that. You know, there's a huge rise in like now they're talking about, you know, more polyamorous relationships and the, the form that human relationships take in that sense it it varies across cultures and different types of environments and um i don't think there's one proper type mm. i guess of of relationship i think it it really depends on culture and circumstance and maybe again that's more of our generalist way as a species we that we adaptable. can adapt <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. we can adapt and and take on um different forms of romantic relationships in that sense so kate yeah. it's been so lovely talking ah, to it's you. been great talking to you as well yeah thanks yeah. very much thank you thank you 
Dr. Kate Thatcher, everyone. If you liked that, please give me a review or a rating. I'd really appreciate that. I'm trying to improve, so some feedback would be great. Hit me up on Twitter, at FascinatePod, just to let you know what's coming up. The next podcast is on mental health. After that, I get some awesome information from a performance psychologist, and then I'm going to meet an expert on primate conservation, specifically gibbons. So thank you to my wonderful guest, Kate. Thank you to my good friend, Laura James. The music for this podcast comes from her song, Rooftops. Check her out on Spotify, she's got an amazing voice. And if you're lucky enough to live near Birmingham or London, there's still tickets for a final two tour date, so you can go see her live. Birmingham is tomorrow night, Friday the 30th, and London is Thursday the 6th of December. Look her up on Facebook, you'll find all the information that you need. And a final thank you to you for listening. See you next time.